0: wanted to say a word to you about uh, about family camp, as i mentioned we 've about one hundred and fifty plus of our folks are there right now, and uh, uh, Lewis has been uh, teaching uh, and leading a discussion it 's been very interactive and very good about uh, some of the biblical basis of the family ministry that we 're moving toward when bJ is going to become pastor for family ministries and as we look for uh, a new youth pastor to come on board. Um, and uh, uh, as as part of our transition over the next uh, months and years. And um, since you were not there (laughs) and were not able to take part in that discussion, uh, we're going to be taking a Sunday school time um, uh, down the road. I'm not sure exactly which Sunday. I should know that. I have it written down. I forgot to get it before I came up here. I'm sorry. But we're going to take a Sunday school time period. For uh, that to be laid out for everyone, also with more Q and A time and more focus on what are we looking for as in, in in youth pastoral ministries. So there'll be a lot of give and take, and and what's the process look like? So that's going to be an upcoming Sunday school hour for those who want to participate in that. So uh, we'll be letting you know um, about that. Uh, but uh, at family camp, it was just it was a wonderful time. The weather was beautiful. Um, the uh, uh, Yesterday afternoon, five people were baptized, and uh, that's always a joyous time. And we look forward to family camp next year uh, when you can be with us, unless we're with the Lord. Because the things that we look at in Romans chapter 11 point in that direction. Every day is one day less until we are with Jesus. Um, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles, not to Romans 11. We're going to go there in a moment. But I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. I'm going to start reading in verse verse 38. And then I'm going to move to Matthew 16. So Matthew 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Matthew chapter 16, starting with verse 1. The Pharisees and Sadducees came up testing Jesus and they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to you, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given to it, except the sign of Jonah and he left them and went away. What did Jesus mean by the sign of Jonah? At the simplest level, you could say, well, Jonah spent time inside the fish. Jesus spent time inside the grave. Both seemed to be their final destinies. Both came out miraculously and victoriously. But there's something deeper here. Jonah was a Jew who had a message for the people of Nineveh that was not gospel good news, but it was bad news. You're going to die. God's going to judge you. And Jonah was delighted that that was going to happen. He didn't want to be the messenger because he thought there's an outside chance that they might repent, but they probably won't, so I'll tell them you're going to die. He was thrilled that that was the content of his message. However, when you read the book of Jonah... To Jonah's dismay, Nineveh repented, believed, and was protect, and was, was, uh, the judgment was lifted. And Jonah did not like it one bit that God forgave those Gentiles. And neither did the Jews in the first century like it one bit. Because when you read through the book of Acts, unsaved Jews who rejected Jesus, they recoiled from the idea of those unclean Gentiles being in the church. Even the Christian Jews who saw God's plan more clearly hesitated. They, they thought may, at first maybe God can have two churches. But no, that was never God's plan. It was all to be one church. And the Christian Jews accepted God's plan of salvation for all nations. And you can read that progress from Acts 10 on. And it was because they saw in Scripture that this was God's plan, and it had always been God's plan. So here's the question about the rest of the Jews who rejected Jesus. If if Israel has rejected God, does that mean that God has rejected Israel? Because now... The church is 99 plus percent Gentile. So if Israel has rejected God, has God rejected Israel? Over the centuries, Gentile Christians have a pretty poor track record with the way that we've treated the Jews persecution, anti Semitism. And now, of course, it wasn't only the Jews, um, I mean, it wasn't only the church that persecuted the Jews over the centuries. Other groups have persecuted the Jews for almost any reason that's available, or sometimes no reason at all. And the deeper reason for the persecution of the Jews over history is because Satan does not want Israel to exist. In fact, the first attempt at genocide in the book of Esther, I am convinced, was because Satan wanted to exterminate the Jews, did not want Jesus to be born. The seed of the woman, promised in Genesis three fifteen, did not want the covenant that God made with Abraham to be fulfilled in Genesis twelve. In you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. And Satan, I will promise you, absolutely hates Romans one uh, sixteen, which says, "I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes." To the Jew first and also to the Gentile. In the big picture of the book of Romans, we have been studying through this book, and Romans 1 through 5 are about justification. That is, how we are saved, how we are justified, declared righteous before a holy God. Despite our sin, Jesus took our sins upon himself and died on the cross in our place, so that by faith in him, we can be saved, we can be redeemed through no merit of our own. That's justification in Romans 1 through 5. In Romans 6 through 8, we have the description of how we are to live by grace. Sanctification. Romans 9 through 11 answer troubling questions that linger about how God works, particularly about Israel and vindication of God's plan. And then Romans 12 through 16 focus on application of chapters 1 through 11 to specific areas of life. And that's really a, a fun section to go through. And we'll be entering that in just a few weeks. Or maybe a couple of weeks. Paul has been saying throughout this book: all have sinned, Jew, Gentile, alike. All have fallen short of God's glory. Romans 6:23, the wages of sin is death. Remember, we've talked about this many times. Wages is something that's earned. You earn wages. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God, not something that we earn, something that is ours by grace, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, Romans 6.23. And that is true for all people, for Jew, for non-Jew or Gentile. That is how we are saved. Romans 9 through 11, Paul addresses God's salvation plan in history. And we've seen his heart in chapter 9. Look at chapter 9. Verse 1, I am telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from God for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are the Israelites. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Chapter 11, verse 1, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? So many Jews think that if they become Christians, they must give up being Jews, because to them, Christianity is a Gentile religion. Paul makes it clear in Romans 9 through 11 that that's not true, and, and Lewis has made this case, uh, and, and he's, he's done it. Clearly, as he has walked us through Romans 11, step by step. And I want to remind you that this chapter has a very specific point. It's not about money management, it's not about how to parent. It has a very specific focus, but that specific focus has the foundation of God's sovereignty in your life and mine because God keeps his promises. And that's what this is about. And that is an underlying truth in which we should revel. And rejoice. God is faithful to his promises. So now we've walked through this chapter. We've seen the terrain, the hills and the valleys, especially in chapter 11. And this morning, instead of walking through chapter 11, I want to jog through chapter 11. I want to spend, there have been some things that, that I've wanted to say, that morning wanted to comment on. And Lewis and I talked about this as well. Things that lead up to the great doxology in chapter 11. Take a look at verse Thirty-three, chapter 1133 oh the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God and then the doxology continues and we're going to look at that in just a moment but I am not going to do a detailed study of that doxology this morning I'm leaving that for Lewis because I love him <laughs> he has taken us through this chapter and I'm not going to take the doxology away from him that's, that's just the fun the great way to end this chapter So, I wanted to make some comments jogging through chapter 11, and and I think this works out pretty well. God has made His premise clear in chapters 9 and 10. In rejecting, here's the point, now get this, in rejecting God's Messiah, His Son Jesus, Israel has rejected God. In fact, that's how the opening question came about. In fact, take a look back at chapter 10, verse 21. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Well, if that's true, if those two adjectives are applied to Israel, disobedient and obstinate, if that's what they are like, then the opening question is very pertinent. If Israel has rejected God, then does this mean that God has rejected Israel? And that's the the point that he makes in the first 10 verses is that God has not totally rejected Israel. There is a faith remnant. Look at verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? And the, the very... First verb, rejected, is, is a verb that's in the middle voice, and here's what that means. It means to push away from oneself, not just to push away, but to push away from oneself. How does Paul answer this question? Has God, has Israel pushed them away from himself? The first way he responds is something you don't pick up strongly in English. Um, I used to have a friend when I was in seminary who was interested in dating girls a lot, um, but he was so shy, he would never ask anyone out. His name is George. And George, he would ask out a girl this way. You don't want to go out with me, do you? Nah. And she would respond, nah. <laughs> okay. So it was, a, it was a question that expected a negative answer, and he got it. And, and here, this, that's the form of this question. It's a negative question. The form of grammar expects a negative answer. That's the first way he responds is just by the way he phrases the question. And then he strengthens it by the statement, may it never be. Oh, we've seen that before. May it never be. What a ghastly thought. No, 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 no. Absolutely not. What, it's a very strong denial. And third, he offers himself as a case study. For I, too, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. So if God is not done with national Israel, then Paul himself, a part of national Israel, would not have been redeemed. And all of that's in verse 1. That's all in verse 1. Then in verses 2 through 6, he describes the relationship between Israel being saved by grace and God's plan for the Jews that is forthcoming and he uses the example of Elijah. Look with me at verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? So he used himself as an illustration, now he uses Elijah as an illustration, how he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. I alone am left, and they are now seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have not I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. There are many Jews who are being saved. I mean, this is, this is actually the story of the Chinese church. You, you don't, there's this remnant. God is at work. Jews, Gentiles, God always is doing more than we are aware that he is doing. And he's doing it by grace. Look at verse 6. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. God is not saving them by their works. God is not saving us by our works. God saves us all by his grace. That's the principle by which he operates. And if somebody would say, you know... If we just add a little bit of works in there to attain the certainty of salvation, that God, wouldn't it be okay? I mean, I've got a glass of water here and just just a drop of strychnine. You know, it's, but it's still water. It's just a drop. But that changes the entire consistency of the water. It's not poison. And if you add works to grace, it's no longer grace. That's his point here. God saves them through no merit of their own. It's not because they are a disobedient people. Now, verses 7 through 10 describe the spiritual blindness of Israel, which invites the question, what possible good can come from what looks like, if you read the Old Testament, what looks like a divorce between Israel and her God? And the answer is, it's not a divorce. It's a separation. And it's temporary. In verses 11 through 16, God is saving Gentiles while he is on the way to continuing to save Jews. That's the point that he makes. Look at verses 11 and 12. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. What a ghastly thought. No, 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 no. God forbid but by their transgressions, salvation has now come to the Gentiles to make them, that is the Jews, jealous. Now if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? And that's something that's in the future. Will their fulfillment be? Now, you remember God's plan. Genesis chapter 12, I'm going to read you a few scriptures here. Just listen carefully to these scriptures genesis 12 verses 1 to 3 where god called abraham and made a nation out of him this is where the jews started now the lord said to abraham abram go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which i will show you and i will make you a great nation i will bless you i will make your name great and so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that happens ultimately spiritually when salvation, when Jesus' salvation is of the Jews. And he is the Savior that provides that salvation which is of the Jews. In Isaiah 42, listen to Isaiah 42, verse 1 says, Behold, my servant Whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Verse 6 says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will point you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. Isaiah 49, verse 6 God the Father is speaking to the Messiah. You with me? God the Father is speaking to the Messiah. And this is what he says. He says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation will reach to the end of the world, of the earth. Wow. See how that expands out, just, not just to Israel, but to the earth. Do you remember what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman? And by the way, she was a non-Jewish woman, right? She was a Samaritan. She was a Gentile. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. And then 20 verses later, he says this to her. "They were saying, I'm sorry, tw- 20 verses later, this is what we read. They were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. We have heard him for ourselves. Now listen, and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. In Acts 13, last passage I'm going to read to you. Listen up. Verses 46 through 48, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, and they said this. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. He's speaking in a synagogue. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For uh, for so the Lord has commanded us, and he's quoting Isaiah 49, I have placed you, Jesus, as a light for the nations, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. What I just read to you from Isaiah 49. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So, if God is at work in the past, if God is at work in the present, and if God still has a future plan for Israel, what should our attitude towards Israel be? I know this is a very focused question, but there are deeper things undergirding this. Uh, but, but I want you, there, there's an attitude that sometimes we have when we read the Old Testament and when we read the New Testament. And, and I mean, we read in the Old Testament and say, why don't they get it? And we read the New Testament and look at the disciples and say, why don't they get it? <laughs> I mean, we, we, we look at this and, uh, and, and I think sometimes almost develop not only an attitude of superiority, but an attitude of arrogance. You know, we wouldn't have done what they did if we'd seen the miracle of the Red Sea or the provision in the wilderness or the light uh, at night and, and, and the cloud by day and the, all that God has done. If, if we'd seen all those miracles, if we'd seen the miracles that Jesus did uh, when he came to his own countrymen, we would have believed. We wouldn't have rejected him. That's the attitude that Paul addresses in verses 17 through 24. And his point in these verses in Romans 11 is that Gentiles need to have some humility here. Okay? Not be prideful as we consider Jewish unbelief. And he uses the illustration of the olive tree, which Lewis developed over two weeks. Uh, Look at verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, And you, being a wild, uh, that is the Gentiles, being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches, whether they're on the tree or off the tree. Do not be arrogant towards the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand not by your works, but by your what? What does it say? By your faith. You stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. That's some pretty practical stuff there. The point is, don't forget that you've been grafted into God's olive tree. And and by the way, it's not Israel's olive tree. It's not your tree. It's God's tree. The roots are in the patriarchs. So don't be prideful, because pride is the very sin that puts us in a place where we cannot receive grace. And there's to be no anti-Semitism among people who have received grace. Is that clear? No anti-Semitism. I may be preaching to the the, uh, choir here, but... uh, Our choir needs to know that, okay? No anti-Semitism among people who've been saved by grace. When I was a teenager, I worked in a store with a sweet little elderly lady named Mrs. James. And she had just checked out a particular um, customer at the uh, cash register. And uh, she turned to me and said, uh, Gary, I just can't stand those people. I was, what people? Who? So I asked her, what people? And she said, Jews. And I told her, I was a teenager, okay. I told her what I'd heard my pastor say. Um, I asked, Mrs. James, are you a Christian? Now, we're, this is before I was saved. But this is what I heard. I said, Mrs. James, are you a Christian? And she said, yes, of course I am. And so at that that point, I said, Jesus is a Jew. Well, I know that. (laughs) And I I think looking back on it, I should have used more tact with a a woman as old as she was. Uh, But that was a new thought to her that she did not want to consider and uh you know and when i look back on that as an old elderly lady i was thinking about that this morning and it dawned on me she's probably 10 years younger than i am right now <laughs> don't say a word just, just <laughs> so and i should mention full disclosure that my Oldest, longest friendship—almost 63 years of close friendship—right now, since the age of six, is with a Jew, who is a Christian, and I. We talk all the time, and I. We both love our friendship and, our, and together. Now, is anti-Semitism a problem, a social problem today? Is it a geo geopolitical problem today? This past week I listened to two Jewish intellectuals, one is an Orthodox Jew, the other is a secular Jew, and what I'm about to say mostly comes from those two sources. The secular Jew is a well-known novelist, screenwriter, and now a political writer who became a Christian. And I recently read his book about his journey to Christ, and this is what he writes. I'm going to read to you, so hang in there with me. It's worth hearing. This is the secular Jew who became a Christian, and this is what he writes. I am a Jew. I am proud of this. Belligerently proud. Probably not the best thing to say. Belligerently proud. Mine is a uniquely great people. We represent about 0.2% of the world. Not 2%, 02 Statistically, almost zero. Yet make a list of the most consequential individuals who have ever lived, and Jews will be thick among them. From Moses, David, Jesus, and St. Paul, to Karl Marx, Sigmund Freud, and Albert Einstein. Around one-fifth of all Nobel, Nobel Prizes have gone to people of Jewish heritage. More if you count only the sciences. And yet, we are the single most despised people on the face of the planet, bar none. Just remember what God said to Abraham, and you, all nations of the earth, will be blessed. Satan says, no, absolutely not. And Satan's, I mentioned Satan's first attempt at a holocaust, a a Jewish genocide, was in the book of Esther. The second one was in Germany. And Here's what he writes about the Holocaust in Nazi Germany. Quote, There are some people who say that an evil as great as the Holocaust is proof that there is no God. But I would say the opposite. The very fact that it is so great an evil, so great that it defies any material explanation, implies a spiritual and moral framework that requires God's existence. More than that, the Holocaust was an evil that only makes sense if the Bible is true. If there is a God, if the Jews are his people, and if we would rather kill him and them than truly know him. And he describes going up, growing up in the United States. He grew up in New York City. And he said he grew up in New York City in the 60s and 70s, and he personally experienced absolutely zero anti-Semitism. But then he went to Europe to live and he said the greatest anti-Semitism that he ever experienced was in London. So it's everywhere. For those who think that the world is now too civilized, too educated, too sophisticated to be against the Jewish people just because they're Jewish, I told you I'm, looking, I'm, I'm, reading from, I'm, I'm getting information from two sources. Here are some facts from the other source. There are 193 countries in the United Nations. 193. Consider the United Nations, the UN Human Rights Council. That's the one that we always hear from, the Human Rights Council. How many resolutions against China with their forced abortions? How many resolutions uh, against North Korea, which is a prison state, against Iran, against Iraq, against Cuba? The UN Human Rights Council has issued 135 resolutions criticizing countries for various human rights abuses. 193 countries 135 resolutions 68 of the 135 resolutions are against Israel so half of them are against one country all okay so the united states general united nations general assembly from 2012 to 2015 adopted 97 resolutions criticizing countries of those 97 83 were against Israel UNESCO the United Nations Educational Scientific Corporation it's supposed its focus is on education right do they have any resolutions against Hamas for using schools to launch rockets against Israel no they adopt about 10 resolutions every year how many are against Israel all of them. World Health Organization adopts about one resolution a year, always against Israel. Now, brothers and sisters, this is, this is not... This is racism. Not against blacks or Hispanics or Asians. Against Jews on a global scale. The survival of Israel as a people is just miraculous the jews were a nation with no homeland from ad 70 until 1948 a nation continuing to exist without a homeland without a country and now they are a major powerhouse in the middle east and hated by their neighbors as no one has ever been hated before i would argue that biblically the abrahamic covenant genesis 12 was enhanced and expanded by the davidic covenants the new covenants and that it's still in effect that Israel as a nation is still God's chosen people. And we see the priority of Jewish evangelism in the book of Acts. We see it in Romans 1.16. Uh, we, we see it elsewhere. And, and Luke, Luke t- just listen to this, Luke 21.24, Jesus was talking about end times, and he warned, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. It's an, it's an immediate prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., But Jesus' point was, this is not the end of God's plan for the Jews. At the times of the Gentiles, when they are fulfilled, a time when Israel has either been under the domination or the threat of Gentiles, when that is fulfilled, Jesus will return and the times of the Gentiles will be over. And if the times of the Gentiles does indeed come to an end, that implies that Israel again emerges onto the prophetic scene, which is what we have today. Things are in place. In the first century, Israel was just a gnat, a little gnat on the rump of the great beast of Rome. Just a gnat. Today, in the 21st century, Israel is center stage in world events. Now, do not mistake what I'm saying here. This is not an Israel right or wrong statement. In the Old Testament, God was not pleased when Israel did evil, and he judged them, judged her, and punished her severely. I am saying that anyone who hates the Jews in principle, either nationally or individually, just because they're Jews, if you're walking across a field, an open field, and whether there's a thunderstorm or not, I'd be real careful. You can think about that. When you look at Romans 10... And 11. When you look at, look at the book of Revelation, where Israel is surrounded by hostile armies and persecuted, I think that today's newspaper editors could learn a few things. Okay, so here's what it comes down to. In Romans 11 25 to 32, one day all Israel will be saved. God's plan will still be fulfilled. Orthodox Jews have been puzzled by two pictures of the Messiah in the Old Testament. There was a, a Messiah that seems to be a suffering servant Messiah. And then there's this victorious Messiah who comes ruling and reigning as the king of kings. And, and some rabbinic teaching held that, well, maybe there are two Messiahs. There's a Messiah Ben Joseph, son of Joseph, the, the suffering servant, who will be a savior, who will die. And Messiah Ben David, the, the kingly uh, servant, uh, a kingly Messiah. The New Testament resolves this Old Testament paradox by pointing not to two messiahs, but to one person who comes two times. Jesus will return and when he does, all Israel will be saved. Lewis talked about this phrase last week, and if you didn't hear his excellent message, you should go online and listen to it. Does this mean that every single Jew alive at that time, without exception, will be redeemed? It may. Or Elsewhere, scripture describes collective decisions in a way that includes the possibility of exceptions. The whole town went out and believed. Well, what about the babies? You know, it, so whichever it is, whenever that day is, and, and I think it may be connected with the prophetic events at the end of the tribulation. Remember those 144,000 Jewish evangelists? Are they the cause of this or the effect of this? I don't know. But Jews in mass will, as Isaiah said, look on him who they have pierced and will believe. Look at verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed about this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What Jesus said in Luke chapter 21, Paul uses the same phrase right here. The fullness of the Gentiles will come in so that all Israel will will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob, this is my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. And when we utter the words in prayer of the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come. This is what we're praying for. There's a famous old one line, eight Word rhyme. How odd of God to choose the Jews. Have you ever heard that? How odd of God to choose the Jews. It was. It became famous in the early parts of the last century. How odd of God to choose the Jews, which was actually it was a, sort of an anti-Semitic rhyme in in urbane tones. How odd of God to choose the Jews. Uh, and over the decades, Jewish Jewish humorists have responded. And my favorite one is this. Not odd of God, the Goyim Anoyim. <laughs> I don't really have any great point about that. I just want to tell you about it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but the the message is: I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it stands written, the just shall live by faith. Don't forget, all the apostles, including Paul, were Jews. All the early Christians were Jews. Don't forget, Jesus, not was, is a Jew. And our task is clear. Sometimes people are misguided and think that now when the body of Christ is predominantly Gentile, it's patronizing or insensitive or rude, To maybe even colonialistic, to try to evangelize Jews. And this is especially true in mainline denominations where in the name of political correctness or tolerance, or, hey, okay, let's just be honest, coexist. But not to tell the Jews about their messiah is deeply anti-Semitic. It is the ultimate hate crime. C.S. Lewis was on target when he wrote, In a sense, the converted Jew is the only normal human being in the world. Everyone else is, from one point of view, a special case dealt with under emergency conditions. Now, that's probably overstated because God has had a plan from the beginning. But why spend so much time with all this? <clears throat> why does Romans 11 spend so much time with all this? Maybe because <clears throat> this, is, this is, is the theme of one of the most extensive sections in Romans. I mean, 9 through 11. It's the theme that runs throughout the Old Testament and is immensely important to God. Maybe because it would have changed history if we had lived by it. Maybe because the Holocaust could happen again. Maybe because in the gospel we see God's response not only to the sin of anti-Semitism, but in the gospel we see God's response to every sin that we have. Now Lewis is going to teach, teach the doxology next week, but I want to make a couple of comments about it. Look at verse 33. It begins, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. Do you notice that Paul is not breaking into praise about having solved all interpretive problems in these chapters? That's not what he praises. He's not giving answers to all possible questions, and that's what he's praising. His answer is in a way that God has the answer. God is the answer. It's remarkable. The whole doxology is prompted by what we, not by what we know, But by what we don't know. Or more precisely, the doxology is about what we know that we don't know about God. In verse 33, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Question Can you do anything, anything at all, to inform God? No. Look at verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who became his counselor? He's quoting Old Testament in verses 34 and 35. But in verse 34, can you do anything, can you do anything at all to advise God? To inform him, to become his counselor? Well, no. Verse 35, who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? Can you do anything, anything at all to put God in your debt to where he owes you? No. Verse thirty six gives the reason. There's a triple preposition here. Puts it all together. From, through, and to. For from him, he's the source of all things, the origin of all things, the first cause. And through him, he's the sustainer of all things, the effective cause. And to him he is the goal of all things, the final cause are all things. To him be the glory forever. And the word glory has a definite article. Not just glory, but the glory. The supreme glory. A king might have derived glory, but you, he doesn't have glory in himself, intrinsic glory. You take away the crown, you take away the robe, you take away the clothes, and you put on homeless man's clothes, and you won't be able to tell the difference from a homeless man. There's no internal, intrinsic glory. The only internal, intrinsic, majestic, unfathomable glory is in God. His glory is who He is. His glory is the sum effect of all His attributes. God is so much more than my solution to the problem of my sin or to the problem of sin in the world. He is the sum of all Things Can you do anything, anything at all to enhance Him, to add to His glory? No. But can you do anything, anything at all to please Him? Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Lord, I thank you.